All right, this morning I'm going to embark on some weeks on preaching on a topic that actually a topic called the doctrines of grace. And um, in time past, it has been uh, historically referred to as the five points of Calvinism. It has received over time severe attacks and given a bad name. However, the question that one must raise is, is this biblical doctrine? Can we, can we make a case from the scriptures? And so um, many people have questions about it, and so hopefully during the weeks we can solve some of those questions. Let me see if, if uh, I do have some slides just because uh, some of the content is a little bit difficult. All right, so the doctrines of grace. Let me just uh, start out and to hold these doctrines of grace. Uh, actually, after being a pastor for so long and studying the scripture uh, week after week and uh, preaching the word of God all these years, I am convinced today that these are biblical doctrines. In fact, it is my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach the doctrines of grace. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said about Calvinism. He said, and I quote, we believe in the first five great points commonly known as Calvinistic but we do not regard these five points as being barbed shafts which we, are th- which we are to thrust between the ribs of fellow Christians. We look upon them as being five great lamps which help us help to radiate the cross, or rather five bright emanations springing from the glorious covenant of our triune God and illustrating the great doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I have my own opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe that we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor, he says, can I comprehend the gospel which allows saints to fall away after they are called to salvation? So, that is really a, a tremendous quote, says everything in there. Now, historically, leading up to the Protestant Reformation, men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, who came a hundred years before 
Martin Luther, and then William Tyndale. These men laid the foundation and built a bonfire to speak, uh, and so to speak, and Martin, Martin Luther kind of simply lit the match and held it to the wood. And of course, uh, when he did that, it sparked the Reformation itself with its po- his posting of the 95 Thesis on the door of the Castle Church in Witt- Wittenberg, Germany. And of course, I mentioned this already, October 30. First, 1517. The result, most of Europe was set ablaze with a revival of the doctrines of grace. So like Luther, before him, Calvin believed in the sovereignty of God and concerning the uh, doctrines of election and predestination, and there was nothing in Calvin's writing and sermons that were not first founded upon Luther. Both these men viewed the world through the lens of the Bible, and they were desiring to establish God's people upon the biblical principles of doctrine. So as time passed, controversy ensued as a man by the name of Jacob Arminius uh, began to raise strong objections to the teaching accepted amongst the reformers. Arminius, Arminius, I can't even say that this morning, studied, actually uh, studied under a Calvinistic teacher named Theodore Beza at Geneva and became a professor of theology uh, in Leiden. Over time, his objections became stronger and stronger until they became a prominent issue amongst the church in Holland. Now, Arminianus, Arminius, known as the Arminians, drew up their creed of the five articles. So, in other words, the five articles of Arminianus, Ar- Arminians came before the five points of Calvinism. In fact, uh, they, 46 ministers uh, came and they met together. Uh, over a period of time and review these doctrines. Now, just to let you know, if you're not familiar with them, uh, there are uh, the five points of Arminian doctrine is the first one would be uh, the free will or human ability. The second would be conditional election. And of course, that Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. And of course, if you believe that, that the sinner's choice of Christ, not uh, God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. And then we have universal redemption or general atonement, saying that Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. And then the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. This, uh, of course, this grace may be the Spirit of God's grace may be resisted because man is free. He has successfully resisted the Spirit's call, and of, of course, that the Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he, the believer, his faith uh, is the condition in which a person is saved. And then, of course, the last one would be falling from 
grace. All right? Now, that's the five points of Arminianism. All right? Now, opposite of that is the five points of Calvinism. The first one is total depravity, all right? Because of the fall of man, uh, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. All right, then we have unconditional election, God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in God's own sovereign will. That means that God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. And then, of course, limited atonement uh, or particular redemption. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secure the salvation for them. Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for his children's salvation. And then, of course, irresistible grace or efficacious call of the Spirit. In other words, apart from the general call of salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. And then, of course, we have the perseverance of the saints, that all who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved, and therefore God keeps them. So those are really the five points on each side. Remember, the points of Arminianism came first, and a rebuttal to those uh, points came out in, the, in the, the five points of Calvinism. Now, the official Calvinistic response emerged from the Synod of Dort in a, a town in Holland, um, of course, which convened to consider the five articles or objections uh, by the Arminians. The Synod of Dort met on November 13, 1618 to May 9, 1619, and wrote what has uh, come to be known as the Canons of Dort. They stated the five points of Calvinism in response to the five articles of the Arminians. Now, this is a very important point to make because the so-called five points of Calvinism were not chosen by the Calvinists as a summary of their teaching. Matter of fact, it was not even heard of then. Calvin never wrote down his theology under five main points. There was far more to reform theology than these doctrines. So these five points were simply a response to the five Arminian objections to reform teaching. So the, the Synod of Dort viewed the Arminian errors and as really extremely serious and a flat denial of the free grace of God in salvation with God being robbed of his glory, they said. So this was viewed at first uh, steps, they say, on a synergistic highway leading right back to Rome. And so therefore, the Synod classed the five points of Arminian doctrines as heretical. And many preachers in the Dutch Reformational churches 
holding to these ideas were put out of the ministry. And they took from November to May a good amount of time to examine all these doctrines biblically, and they concluded that they were not biblical. So, of course, the Arminian point of view, I'm saying. The biblical or the Calvinistic points of view were very much found in the Scripture. So knowing something about uh, the history of the debate is helpful, but it is far more important to know that these doctrines are, in fact, biblical and at the heart of the Christian faith. They are not mere historical novelties or, or something which only theologians or church historians should have an interest. These are biblical doctrines, and they matter very deeply. They should matter to you. So to ask why these things should be of interest to us is to ask the question, why is it important to understand what is at the heart of the Christian faith? Where each of us stands on these five doctrines deeply affects our view of God, our view of man, of regeneration, of salvation, of assurance, of the nature of the atoning work of Christ, of worship, of evangelism, of missions. Somewhere along the way, for the English-speaking world at least, the five points of Calvinism came to summarize uh, by the acrostic tulip. And some today even have considered it as to be uh, what they call rupep. And, um, of course, as R.C. Sproul says, rupep kind of ruins the flower garden. Because uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said something like, the flower that represents the Arminians is the daisy. God loves me. God loves me not. And, of course, the one that represents the Calvinists is tulip. God loves me and keeps me. So that's really some things that came out of it. But the, so, so what I'm saying here is that these uh, five points are laid out like this, and I'm going to start with total depravity today. Uh, and, of course, another way to look at total depravity is radical corruption. And then, of course, unconditional election, unconditional election, and then limited atonement, Many have said it's better to say particular redemption, uh, irresistible grace, uh, or effectual call of the Spirit, and then perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. Now, those are all how they're categorized uh, um, along the way. So I just wanted to put that before you because some people are a little confused about that, and so what I want to do now is I want to look and finally get into the Word of God to see some passages of scriptures that are related to it, and then to use kind of that as an example, the rich young ruler, at least in one area that this doctrine may affect, and that's the area of evangelism. All right, so what is total depravity? All right, what is it? Uh, well... Total depravity is also called total inability or total corruption or radical corruption. And it is a biblical doctrine closely linked with the doctrine of original sin as formulated by uh, or formalized by Augustine, 
uh, you know, St. Augustine, he was a, a tremendously great theologian. Also didn't get everything right, but he definitely got this stuff right. The doctrine also understands the Bible to teach that as a consequence of the fall of man, every person born into the world, uh, several things happens to that person. Number one, they are, uh, that person, every person born into the world is morally corrupt. Secondly, they are enslaved to sin. Thirdly, they are apart from God's grace. And of course, a last thing, they are utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith for salvation. Now, in thinking of that, total, we have to ask the question, is total depravity the same as absolute or utter depravity? And of course, the answer to that is no. The difference between total depravity and utter or absolute depravity is to be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one could possibly be. Hitler, of course, was extremely depraved, but he could have been worse than he was. I'm a sinner, yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. You're a sinner, and you could sin more often and more severely than you actually do. So people are not utterly or absolutely depraved, but people are totally depraved. For total depravity means that I or I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. Now, what that means is that man's depravity is total in at least four senses. Now, I would like you to Take your Bible, let's turn to some passages. The first would be in Romans chapter 3, in verse number 10. Romans chapter 3, in verse number 10. And of course, that would be a passage of Scripture 9. Verse number 9 tells us this, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then in verse number 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And what is the reason for that? Verse 18 of chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So in other words, the first sense in which man is totally depraved is that our rebellion against God is total. Um, Apart from the grace of God, there is no delight in the holiness of God. There is no glad submission to the sovereignty or authority of God. Uh, Some theologians have said uh, uh, the reason why they call it other than... um, total depravity, radical corruption, which is a good way to do it, is because uh, the word radical actually means, uh, it comes from the Latin word that means root or core. Uh, In other words, our problem with sin is that it is rooted in the core of our being. 
And that's what we, the sense that we get in Romans, that all the world is guilty before God. All the world is under sin, whether they're Jew or Greek. And the reason for that is that when people are born into the world in, with this radical corruption, they do not fear God. And so, therefore, they do what they want in their rebellious natures. They do not fear God. And then, of course, secondly, a second sense is uh, its total rebellion. Uh, in, his, in, in a person's total rebellion, everything man does is sin. Uh, like it says in Romans 14 and verse number 23. While you turn there, see, there's, there's no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words. We do sinful deeds. We have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. Romans 14, 23 says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats course, in the context there, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So whatever a man would do that is not from faith in Christ and his daily living would be sin, and that is something that radical corruption proves is that we do not, we do, everything we do is tainted by Sin, And then also, thirdly, a third sense, man's inability to submit to God and to do good is total. Now, again, if you're right there in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, as you turn, I mean, fallen man is, is so morally blind that he uniformly prefers and chooses evil instead of good as do, of course, fallen angels and demons. But look at Romans 8, 7, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a pretty pretty clear passage of Scripture that tells us that uh, Man has an inability within himself to submit to God and to do good in totality in everything they do. And then, of course, uh, fourth sense of this radical corruption is our rebellion is totally deserving of eternal punishment. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. Of wrath. So in other words, that we were born into this world sinners. And that sin was transmitted to us by Adam. And so that means we are born uh, to sin. Uh, we cannot help that. That is our nature. And that nature is rooted really in the doctrine of original sin. And so what is the doctrine of original sin? It, it's really a doctrine which holds that, human, uh, that the human nature has been morally and ethically corrupted due to disobedience of man's, mankind's first parents to the revealed will of God. God says to Adam, 
everything in the garden's yours, but this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's mine, don't touch it. Adam disobeys, Eve disobeys. So in the Bible, the first human transgression of God's command is described as the sin of Adam and Eve, and in the Garden of Eden, resulting in what theology calls the fall of mankind or original sin. So the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall such that all humanity is ethically debilitated and people are powerless to rehabilitate, to rescue or save themselves unless God rescues them. They cannot do it on their own. Now, out of this doctrine of original sin, um, I mentioned this, this in the other messages I preached on the souls of the Reformation, is the three column, column, uh, co- common theologies, types of theologies that come out of that, that really affect how we understand salvation. And of course, one of these theologies, two of these theologies are very much operative today. All of them are, but two in particular, but there's only three, and it's, of course, I want to give them to you because they could be a little bit confusing just by hearing them, all right? And the first one would be that of Pelagianism, all right? Uh, And the second one would be that of semi-Pelagianism, and the third one would be Augustinianism, or uh, we can put next to Augustinian uh, what the Bible teaches, but Back up to the first one, that um, Pelagianism really, let me just, uh, falls out in two areas. Like what this man did, actually, he was a, a monk uh, in, and of course, was uh, in Rome. He was expelled from Britain with, from, with his teaching and then went back to Rome. And so he, he had great spiritual influence and intellect and um, what he believed, as far as the fall, is that when he came to human ability, he taught that man is qualified for right or wrong action through a self-complete, independent, inherent capacity, and that it was possible for man to live a sinless life. He even went on to teach that Abel and John the Baptist were actually sinless. He also said that Concerning the fall, Pelagius uh, and the consequences of Adam's sins, he denied that there is such a thing as original sin. He denied that man inherited Adam's guilt and refused to allow that there were any ill effects of Adam's sin. In other words, this was deemed heretical, by the church, even by the Catholic Church, and it was thrown out as unbiblical, humanistic, and unchristian. But one thing that was, is true about it, it is completely man-centered. This is what man can do apart from God. In other words, he would finally say he does, the person doesn't need any help from God. Now, second one would be of course, semi-Pelagianism. Now, this, of course, this is kind of like half-road uh, view of this particular truth. Uh, and what, what this says is that man cannot 
be saved apart from the grace of God. But, and this is what I want to stress, there is something man must do even in his fallen state to cooperate with the grace of God if God will save him or if he will reject God's grace. So, yes, they would agree under this one that man is a fallen sinner and uh, under the wrath of God, but he did not lose everything in the fall. He still has a natural ability to respond to the grace of God and to come to Christ. Or in other words, he was not, he was rendered wounded. Didn't lose everything, uh, but he was wounded and still had a certain ability to respond to God. Now, if you look at that too, that doctrine, you will have to conclude too, that is also man-centered. And of course, there is a third one, and that's Augustinianism. And of course, that is the one that I believe is taught in the Bible, the one that I would hold. And of course, that one teaches something very clear and simple, and it's that man must depend fully on God for salvation and is totally dependent on the grace of God, even for his initial response to the gospel. See, this is man-centered. I mean, this is God-centered, not man-centered. This is God-centered. So the question is, can a man respond in his fallen state? Can he respond by what he inherited from Adam in the original fall or original sin? Pelagius says, yes, he can. I think that's it, right? Yeah, it is. All right, I don't think I had that on. Yes, I can. Okay, Pelagius said, yes, absolutely, doesn't need any help. Semi-Pelagian says, yes, he needs help. And of course, Augustinian says, no, he's dead, right? Now, when you go to Ephesians, what does it say? We're dead in trespasses and sin, right? So the third position, I believe, is the biblical view is the one founded in Scripture. The biblical basis for the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption is definitely founded in Scripture. So let's look at a few other passages of Scripture this morning, and let's look first of all at Romans chapter 1, verse 28, being that you're still there in Romans. See, a number of passages are put forth to support the doctrine, showing that the fall of mankind affected the whole person, the mind, the will, the affections. So the first thing that we would consider here is that man is born with a corrupt mind or a depraved mind. In other words, mind is darkened, his corrupt heart is darkened. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul talking about the character of God, the righteousness of God is displayed from heaven. And then in verse number 28, he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer but gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do those things which are not proper. So in other words, the mental faculties are, are definitely affected in the fold. Now, it doesn't mean that the mental faculties are destroyed. We can still think. We can still make decisions. But what it does say, and we must conclude, is that the mind has been injured. It has been defiled. It's, it's been disabled by sin. Therefore, the mind is subject to misunderstand the truth. The mind is dazed and confused about what is true. Who is God? What does it mean to be saved? Also under this, there's another passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it says very clearly, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And of course, if we go back to Genesis... In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Uh, that, that's the Corinthians. But Genesis, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And of course, we can go to passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture, and we'll find the same thing, the one I already read in Romans 8, 7, for the mind is set on the flesh. It's hostile to God. It can't submit to the law of God. It, it, it just cannot please God. So we have a corrupt mind and we have a depraved mind. And then secondly, that has affected our will or our volition. The fall left the will unable to perform any spiritual good. It's decision-making faculty is flawed because it is fallen and enslaved to sin. Hence, unable to choose any spiritual good. The will is in a state of spiritual deadness. Again, uh, the passage from Colossians and also from Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Ecclesiastes tells us in 7 verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's very key. Because, see, we're, the reason why we can, we can make decisions with our will, we can think with our mind, is because we still have those faculties in place. The problem is that those faculties are in bondage to sin. They're under the slavery of sin. Sin is our master. We obey it in our passions and our desires and our will and our thinking. And that is true across the, beer, uh, across the board. So our mind is corrupt, our will is corrupt, but also our affections are corrupt. Again, in the Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 passage, where it says, and among them, we too all formerly lived, how did we live? In the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh 
and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. So even in our affections, in our passions, in our desires and emotions, all of those things are twisted, directed and led by the wicked heart, the course of this world, and the father of lies. Jesus told the men that he was speaking to there in John chapter 8, who said, we're children of Abraham, and he said to them, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desire of your father. Jesus really nailed it when it came to how much we are enslaved to sin. In other words, we're totally enslaved to sin. This bondage is universal. Colossians tells us, when they sinned against you, for there is no man who does not sin. And then in Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. No one could say that. And then Isaiah tells us, in verse 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord, of course, has caused the iniquity of us all to be laid upon him. And then, of course, this this universal bondage also gives us an inability to change. We cannot change ourselves. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its, its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And then, of course, Jesus said, uh, it's recorded in the Gospel of John, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last days. So because of the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption, Uh, because it's thoroughly biblical, it will really serve us several practical implications. The first one would be that it leads us to a strong reliance on the sovereignty of God in regard to our salvation. Uh, it, It really removes doubt from us, realizing that if God has saved us, who can take that salvation away from us? No one can take it away. Second thing that it will establish a trust in God's ability to keep us until the day of full redemption. That's the perseverance of the saints. God saves us. He brings us right to the end of our life. But along that journey, we are growing in our knowledge and wisdom of Christ. We are being sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, it will give us a correct understanding of the nature of sinful humanity and why they need to be saved from God's wrath and the condemnation that sin brings. See, a Christian shouldn't uh, be surprised by sin. Matter of fact, parents shouldn't be surprised when your children sin. Uh, you should expect it. Because you know why? Their, their nature is that they're a sinner. sinner. They are uh, in bondage to that sin, so they are going to sin. Uh, and so it's your job to steer them away from that natural bent to sin get them to listen to your voice, and then ultimately uh, they can grow to listen to God's voice. And then fourthly, 
it will humble us and in, in, in the sense that we will desire to give glory to God for our salvation, for our life, for the things he gives us, for the word of God, for the, just the goodness that, and the graciousness that comes to us because we are believers. So just one area would be also the area of evangelism. When it comes to our evangelism, we will learn to depend on the tools God has given us to make sinners aware that they are indeed sinful in their thoughts, in their words, in their deeds, in their motives, and under God's condemnation, unable to rescue themselves. And yet, because of God's great love, he provided a way to be saved from God's judgment through the sacrificial death of another. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But here's the problem. Here's the problem in just one area of evangelism. If you ask most people, do you think you're a good person? The usual answer would be, yes, I think I'm a good person. I try not to hurt anybody. I try to help others when I can, and so on and so forth. So they are, they are generally saying that the human being is basically by nature good. That's the general understanding most people have of themselves. Based on this understanding, when asked, do you think God will let you into heaven? They reply, most often, possibly with a pause, yes. I think overall I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't killed anyone. I'm human, not perfect. So yes, I I think that I've been pretty good and, and that God should let me into heaven. They base their understanding of goodness based on their own definition of goodness. They base their understanding on their own mind as the standard and their comparison with others who are worse than them. See, that's their standard. So to offer Christ to someone who thinks themselves good, the message of Christ crucified will make no sense to them. In a similar, it is really similar to what the Apostle Paul wrote in the Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, indeed, the Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, but to the Jew it's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. doesn't make any sense that this person would die in my place. But then he says this, but those who are called, those who have come to Christ, who understand what it means to be saved, who understand they could not offer God anything for their salvation because they have no goodness. They are sinners, and under God's condemnation and wrath, he says this, but for those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so what the sinner does not realize is that the standard of what is good or who is good is God himself. That is the standard of what is good. Now, I want to use at the end here just a case scenario. Let's look at Mark chapter 10. So take your Bible, 
Turn to Mark chapter 10, and I want you to see the encounter that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. You know the story well if you've been around. But I just want to point out some things uh, in this passage as far as evangelism is concerned and as far as the doctrine of total corruption or total depravity. All right, Mark chapter 10, look at verse number 17. And it says there, uh, well, in, it does say there, and as he was setting out on a journey in verse 17, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teachers, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but I wish people would run up to me and say that so I can give them the gospel. Evangelism is not that easy. Uh, so he seems to like to be a great evangelistic prospect. But if we, if we take a, a closer look, um, his question really is asking, what else must I do? I've done all these things. What else must I do? Like, am I missing something? Is there, is there a step I missed? I need to know that. Well, in in verse number 17, he also says this. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to them, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is he doing here? You know what Jesus is always teaching? He's teaching this man, let me correct your understanding of goodness. There is no goodness in man. The only one that you can apply the word goodness to is God himself. God is good as the very source of life and salvation. God is the standard of what is truly good all the time, every time. However, the rich young ruler had a flaw flawed understanding of goodness. His understanding of goodness was as moral achievement or moral attainments or accomplishments. See, he has been successful at doing good things. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus does something very loving here in verse number 19, right? And what does he say in verse number 19? He says this, You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And what's the response in verse 20 of the rich young ruler? Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. See, in other words, he was very accustomed to doing things. And so Jesus gives him five negative commands, one positive command, in a totality of six commandments, but there are ten commandments. In other words, Jesus left a few out. And why did he do that? He did that because he wanted to get a response to the man of how he was doing spiritually. And the man simply says, I kept all these things from my youth up. So the young man is sure that he has kept these from his youth up In other words, he is self-righteous. I've done these things. I said, I'm self-righteous now. So he actually used the law, the law of God. Instead of lawfully, he used it unlawfully. 
And why is that? Because the purpose of the law was to magnify guilt and sin. It was not designed to make one secure in their self-righteousness. So, in other words, you can see his depraved mind reinterpreting the purpose of the law. That's what he was doing. You know what? He's not alone. We might as well put ourselves in this passage of Scripture. We do the same exact thing. Just think for a moment that this young man is outwardly an exemplary young man. He could easily be praised and, uh, as someone to take, be, look at as an example in our life. So, but he, for him, it's all about what he has done and what he can do. Is, is there something missing I can do? So the young man outwardly kept the commandments, but failed to grasp the nature of the law, the purpose of the law. In Romans chapter 7, verse number 14, the Bible says the law is spiritual. It says, for we know that the law is spiritual, and I am of flesh sold under the bondage, sold into the bondage of sin. So what does Jesus do? In verse number 21, notice what happens. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But as these words, but at these words he was saddened and went away grieve, grieving for he was one who owned much property. So what was Jesus doing? You know what Jesus was doing? He was applying to the man the rest of the law. In other words, the ones that he was not keeping and picked and choose the ones he could keep, but ignore the ones that he was not keeping and not even realizing possibly he was keep, not keeping them. So you may have thought that Jesus would have come down upon him for his self-righteous response, but he did not. Uh, it said Jesus had felt love for him, just like it says in Romans but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is, is most clearly demonstrated at the point of our sinfulness under the magnification of the law in the shadow of the cross. Now, the love of God is important, to be sure, but God's love can never be seen until sinners see the wrath of God. It can never be seen until then. So how did Jesus express love to the man? Jesus expressed love to the man by the application of, of the correct application of the law. In other words, Jesus held up the law to the man as a mirror and said, look, look right here. This is what you love more than me. And what did he love more than Christ? He loved his wealth. That's what he loved. He loved his possessions. All right. He, Jesus wanted this man, by the application of law, first to understand that you cannot obtain eternal life by the law, that is, by keeping it. And secondly, to understand all that the law can do for you is to show your sin. The law brings to the surface of the heart that which you cannot see and fail to recognize. It's just like Paul, again, says in Romans chapter 3, he says this, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law 
comes the knowledge of sin. The law makes demands upon our thoughts and our feelings and our attitudes and the intentions of our heart. It makes demands on our conscience. It goes right for the conscience. It actually, in a sense, bypasses the arguments that we would have and goes right for the conscience. And once you start looking at the conscience, once you start seeing your conscience, what's the conscience there for? It's there to be kind of an empire, uh, to say, kind of show you what you're doing right, and then when you do wrong, what happens? You feel guilty, right? Well, the law, when it's shown to a person, it should show them guilty before God. Not that you've done these commandments and it's, you are now like on board with God and, and self-righteous. It, it's, it was never designed for that. That's a perversion of what was meant, how the law is meant to be used. So Jesus, in love, places his finger on the rich man's most darling sin and applies a spiritual application from the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Even the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I would have not known what coveting actually is if it wasn't for the law. Coveting is desiring to have something that God never intended you to have. In your own mind. So Jesus actually applies also the first and second commandments to the man, which are this. You shall know the gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So if the question from the way of the master was applied here, and that what is the question? Well, what would the response be from this man? Here's the question. If God were to judge you by the Ten Commandments, do you think you would be innocent or guilty? That's a question that we all should ask ourselves. Probably this man would have says, I'm innocent. All right, of course, if you notice the way he left, he left not following Christ. He left not being convicted of his sin of idolatry and covetousness and loving money and possessions more than God. He did not turn from that. So ultimately, you know what the law did? The law showed him that he was condemned in his sin. Right? He was condemned in his sin. You know what? Jesus didn't run after him. He didn't say, let's become friends and, and let's do friendship evangelism. You know, and maybe somewhere down the line you would come. No, he didn't do that. The man rejected the clear purpose of the law to convict him of sin and cause him to want to repent and run to Christ. That's what it should do, but it didn't do that. Jesus simply said, do not covet. The rich young man would have said, I'm satisfied if he just said, don't covet. I'm satisfied with my lot and my station in life. I have enough stuff. You've, you've provided all those things. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus put his finger on the chief of this man's sin and went for the heart of his problem, his devotion to wealth instead of his devotion to God. That's, that's the problem. 
So this fine prospect of a man was called out by the law. The law found him to be a rebel against a holy God and dreadfully, dreadfully sold out to Satan in covetousness. If he repented, then he would find true riches. It says in verse 21, you will have true riches in heaven if you repent. So there is a condition placed on having treasure in heaven, and that condition is repentance. Repentance is the change of mind that the law brings. Remember, the, the law is given to lead us to Christ. It can't save us. It can't even help us be saved. It only brings us to Christ, and it, leaves, it points us to the right person, right? Who took the condemnation for sin? Jesus Christ. Who took the wrath of God? Jesus Christ. It brings us right there, but see, at that point, when the Spirit of God being the necessary condition of our salvation convicts that person of sin by the use of the law, and that person realizes they cannot save themselves, what do they do? They said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Right? That's it. That's, that's where it brings you. And believe me, that's a good place. That's a good place to be. That's the only place you want to be. So see, repentance is a change of mind about your sin, about yourself, and about the Savior. One must turn his back on the God of, well, in this case, this man must turn his back on the God of gold for heavenly treasure. All his works, righteousness, are vain, empty, What he needs is a complete inward change. The law showed him that he is not good. Only God is good. So this young man was so attracted to Jesus, came running after him, bowing down to him, calling him a good uh, person and all the things that he had done, but he didn't see past his earthly treasure. He didn't see heavenly treasure more to be desired nor did he see the need to continue to follow Christ, which would have been evidence of true saving faith. So where does his depraved mind and depraved affections and depraved will, where does it come out? It comes right out in verse 22 in his response. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He wasn't willing to get rid of it. He's willing to love that more than God. So he was guilty of violation of the Tenth Commandment, which was not listed at first. He was guilty of violation of the First Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He was deficient of love for God, and therefore guilty of breaking the whole law, as it says in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all, and that's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to magnify our sin to the point where we have no more argument for God. All that we say is, Lord, I'm guilty as charged, but you're a kind and good Savior. Save me. You know what God does? He saves you. Because anybody who comes in that way to God, he will in no wise cast that person out. That's why he came, so we could be saved. In fact, 
and I'll end with this. Look at Mark chapter 10 and verse number 23. Because a person may say, well, wow. And matter of fact, this was the conclusion of the the disciples, and, and it should be our conclusion too. Lord, if this is the case, after watching what went on with the rich young, if this is the case, it's impossible to be saved. Look what it says in verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he says to them. See, the Lord did not deny the responsibility of the rich man, the rich person can be saved. Jesus simply said that it was difficult. See, salvation is so desirable and necessary. Why is it so difficult to obtain? See, the difficulty is in the power of sin and what sin delights. It is because man has a corrupt mind, a corrupt will, and corrupt affections. That's why he cannot come. That's why it's impossible. That's why it says in Scripture that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. But you know what? Getting into the kingdom of God is not just hard. It's impossible. That's what Jesus was saying. In other words, he was really being, (laughs) basing his stuff in the doctrines of Calvinism. It's about the sovereignty of God, of course. It was about the Bible, of course, the scripture. But look what he says in verse number 24 of Mark 10. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he was simply saying there to us, the only one who can get you into the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ, the Savior. So in other words, getting into the kingdom of God is humanly in an impossible mission. The rich man, even though all the resources of his wealth he was able to muster, even all the personal goodness that he obtained could do nothing toward being saved and entering the kingdom of God. See, the illustration of the camel is absolutely true. What men, with men, this thing of being saved and entering the kingdom of God, it's impossible. Men can do absolutely nothing toward their salvation. Can they work for it? No. Can they buy it? No. What about the works of charity? Can charity gain eternal life? What about being good enough? How good is good enough? What about moralism? Being as moral as you can be. That's the gospel of today. Be moral. You know, do things right without the power of God. That, that'll never save you. You'll just die a good person as far as the world is concerned. And it's not synergism. In other words, we cannot even cooperate with God in our salvation. We can do nothing but by repentance and faith in Christ to receive the free gift of eternal life. And that's what John says in chapter 1, 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were born again of God, period. It is an astonishing thing to realize that the totality of the salvation process is a gift of God. Salvation is something for which we can take no credit. That's where God gets the glory. Real Christians are persuaded that the finished work of Christ is sufficient for salvation and nothing whatsoever needs to be added to it at any time. Salvation then is a supernatural work of God. Eternal life is the life that is in Christ. Salvation was never, ever intended to be man's work. Never, ever. So what is the key to eternal life? The key to eternal life is the miraculous intervention of God alone to draw a sinner to himself, the Father drawing the sinner to Christ. As the sinner comes under conviction of sin, they realize that Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem they have of having a bad heart and a a bad record, and they then come in repentance and faith, repentance towards God the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they call out with their mouth and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, meaning believing everything that God has offered in salvation as something free, and say, Lord, I want it. Save me. And you know what he does? He saves us. And he keeps us saved. Real Christians don't lose their salvation because God did it all. He's not an, I guess the old, the old saying is God's not an Indian giver. I guess the, in the tribes, you know, Indians would give you something and take it back. Right? God gives us something. We keep it. It's forever. That's why the promises in Scripture for eternal life is we have eternal life. These things I've written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. Do you know it? If you know it, you need to go away not saddened like the rich young ruler, but glad and rejoicing about the great things you have done. And if you have not believed, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you stop arguing with God and stop bringing up a thousand questions and come to Christ and submit to Christ and be saved. So who can be saved? Certainly not those who neglect the means of salvation. Certainly not those who prefer other things before it. Certainly not those who think to attain it any other way than the way God has appointed. Who can be saved? Certainly those who have seen themselves in the mirror of the law and realize they have broken it and have been found guilty and condemned underneath the law, and then they cry out, again, what must I do to be saved? Certainly those attain it the way God has appointed it in Scripture. And that's what the Gospel of Mark started out saying. Listen, the time, this time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So Christ is God and consequently sovereign Lord over all things. 
And as such, the object of saving faith. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in what? Righteousness. Right? Once the Spirit of God is in you, now the result of that is a righteous life. So what should this doctrine of total depravity do to us? It should humble us. It should humble us to the dirt. Secondly, it should caution us. Where do you really stand before God? Are you playing the good card? If you are, it's not a card you're going to win. And then, of course, it should cause us to walk away, not sad like the rich young ruler, but rejoicing for so great a salvation that has been offered to us, freely given in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this truth. I pray, Lord, that we'd be thinking about it. I pray it would cause us to examine ourselves. It would bring us to a place, Lord, that we truly know that we are born again, that it gives us that confidence and boldness, not because of anything we ever done, but because of everything you have done. And I pray, Lord, as we consider that, I pray every day we would be thinking of and growing in the truths of Scripture, especially, Lord, these truths that magnify the doctrine of salvation, that doctrine being rooted in the sovereignty of God at every single step. I praise you and thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. And Lord, I I do want to say thanks for protecting me yesterday. Uh, Thank you, Lord. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.